Hey, good afternoon. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest, Daryl Dury, who's the co-founder of Dury Tangri. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Daryl, let me start by asking you how you got into IP law to begin with, and specifically IP litigation. When I started off as a lawyer, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to get the most broad-ranging experience that I could. And the firm that I started at was working in a wide variety of areas. I actually wound up starting off doing a lot of insurance coverage work. Hmm. Um, And uh, I thought that was less interesting. Um, And I worked on the firm's first patent case, and I loved it. Um, I found it was a medical device case involving implantable heart defibrillators, Um, I thought the technology was interesting. I thought the law was interesting. Um, And it was a lot better than doing insurance coverage. Um, So that sort of started my career as an IP lawyer. Well, since then, how has your patent law career evolved? What kinds of technologies have you done since then? So I have worked in a wide variety of areas, um, ranging from... Uh, methods of using thermal waves to look for subsurface defects in semiconductor chips to 802.11 signal processing standard to monoclonal antibodies to internet-related technologies. I really see myself as being a lawyer first and foremost, and my job is to translate the technology into language and concepts and stories that will resonate with a jury or resonate with a judge. So I view myself as someone who's interested in technology and science. I love the days that I get to spend with engineers understanding how something works. Um, but I don't specialize in any particular area. And I would say, you know, I, although I do a lot of patent cases and I love patent litigation, I do lots of other kinds of work too, you know, copyright, trademark, trade secret, even non-IP cases, because I like having that variety. Hmm. Is there a specific area of technology that you like better than the others, or you kind of all like it about the same? So I I love biotechnology. My background is in biology. Ah. I have a human biology undergrad degree, as well as comparative literature, which I always say has a lot more relevance to a patent litigation practice than you might (laughs) think, because a lot of it is about very careful textual analysis. But I love biotech cases, and I've been lucky enough enough to represent Genentech for many, many years um, in, an, in a variety of areas, but including a lot of the patents um, covering Herceptin, which is their big blockbuster breast cancer drug. And I find that technology super interesting. And I also just find it really interesting to learn about sort of the newest developments mm-hmm. in, in medical technology. Well, given that you're a bio major and a comparative literature major, you think that patent law will be the perfect combination. You think you would have known that years and years ago. Uh, I, I guess I just didn't have that insight early on, but it is in fact wound up being the perfect marriage of science and language. Yeah. Well, what, tell me a couple of the you know most interesting or the most complex cases that you've worked on through in your career. So, Look, I think the case that's probably the highlight in a lot of ways is the Google Books case um, because it was incredibly important. I mean, it you know it risked shutting down this project that I thought actually really made a difference to the availability of knowledge, and it ultimately combined substantive copyright law, class action practice, hmm. antitrust. You know, it brought together all of these different threads. And I've never had one case that presented such a wide range of issues. 
And I remember when we actually entered into a settlement of the case originally, and there was a contested hearing on settlement approval, ultimately um, the court denied um, our, settle, our motion to settle the case, but then ultimately we wound up winning on the merits, so it was okay. But that hearing on settlement approval, um, we were in sort of the large large courtroom in the Southern District of New York. There was an overflow courtroom, and then there was an overflow courtroom because the overflow courtroom was full. Wow. Um, and, you know, we had something like 30 different represented objectors stand up and speak. We also had a bunch of people speak in favor of the settlement. Um, it was a very policy-driven discussion. And that was definitely one of the highlights because there were just enormous number of really smart, impressive lawyers in the room. And I felt like the decision that was being made really was hugely consequential, both for the development of copyright law ultimately, but also for sort of how orphan works were actually going to get handled and whether these works were in fact going to be made accessible to people. Mm. So that was a pretty extraordinary opportunity. Um, And then I would also just say I love trying cases. And so each of the trials that I've done has a special place in my heart. Um, I just finished a little earlier this year trying a case in front of Judge Donato here in a trade secret case. Um, Really good lawyers on the other side. You know, interesting issues. Juries in this district are extraordinary. I mean, really attentive. Um, And that just brought home to me and reminded me how fun it is to actually get to be in trial. Mm. When you look at a patent case, do you think it's do you think it is the technology that excites you more? It's really the legal maneuvering and the legal uh, litigation piece that's more. Exciting yeah, for you. I, I love learning the technology, and I love thinking about how you translate this case that at first blush can seem somewhat dry and technical mm-hmm. into a story because all cases ultimately are stories Mm. that a jury is going to find interesting and compelling. Mm. Where's the thing in the case that will resonate with someone Mm. and motivate them? Mm. Because you've got to, you've got to be right and you've got to persuade a jury that you're technically right, but you also have to give jurors a reason to care. Mm. And I find that exercise of sort of thinking not only just why are we right, but what can we say to people to make them care Um, to be a really fun part of the practice. And I do enjoy, I feel like we're so privileged because so many patent cases involve really interesting cutting edge technological issues and the idea that people pay us to get to go learn about, you know, the cut through, you know, sort of most breakthrough things that are happening is just extraordinary. What's the most complicated technology you've had to deal with? Oh boy. Um, so I would say that I had this trial involving these, the, this technique for using thermal waves and the diffraction patterns of thermal waves to look for subsurface defects in semiconductor chips. They actually also use the same technology to scan the skin of aircraft hmm. to look for cracks hmm. in the skin. Yeah. And so it, the specific claims involved the way that they were looking at these diffraction patterns. Hmm. And I remember that it involved imaginary numbers. And I was trying to think about how am I going to explain? I don't understand imaginary numbers. I have no idea how I'm going to explain to a jury imaginary numbers. Um, My memory from that case um, was that we put on our expert, the other side put on their expert, who was this professor from MIT. And he said some stuff that just as a matter of science, we thought was just false. We got the daily transcript. We faxed it, because it was back in the days of fax machines, to this guy who was a prof at Stanford. And Uh we called him up on the phone, and we said, here's what this guy from MIT said. 
we think he's just wrong. Will you come testify? Mm. And he came up the next day and came into court and said, absolutely, I won't charge you anything. What he said was an affront to science. I'll set the record straight. Um, and he did. And the judge let us put him on. We hadn't disclosed him. I mean, but let him let us put him on as a rebuttal witness. And we won the case. You're talking about imaginary numbers. I was I went to Caltech myself as an engineer. So I'm, I'm thinking about the square root of negative one as you said that. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> now, you started this firm during Tangri uh, several years ago, many years ago now. Tell me a little about why you started the firm and what, what was the main reason you started this firm? So we had there was a group of us who back when we were in law school um, had sort of said that we were going to start a firm together. We mm-hmm. were friends. We really enjoyed working together, and we thought, you know, if we could go start a law firm, it would be awesome. We'd have a ton of fun. Um, But, of course, that wasn't a practical thing to do coming straight out of law school. And so we had gone, initially gone our separate ways, and then many of us had all wound up practicing at the same firm together. Uh, But we still thought it would be a really fun thing to do. That sort of entrepreneurial itch hadn't really gone away. And it got to a point where we just realized that we were at a point in our careers where we were either going to do it or we weren't going to do it. We felt we were confident enough to think that we could be successful, but we still had enough energy that it was something we might actually do. And it sort of got to the point where we just all looked at each other and said, do we still want to do this? Mm. Um, We were representing a lot of startups. It was fun to think about having a startup of our own. I've always liked, you know, cold pizza and sort of that feeling (laughs) of starting up something and everyone kind of working late into the evening around the same table. And we thought, yeah, we want to we want to have that experience. And it's fun to think about starting a law firm from scratch because you're not you don't have to have a file room. I mean, there's so many ways in which the practice of law has changed and you can do things differently. We wanted to be a little bit innovative. And frankly, we just thought it would be fun. Mm. Um, And it's been a ton of fun. So how many people were part of the original founding group? How many lawyers were there? So there were five lawyers who sort of technically founded the firm, but there were, and then there were a couple of other folks that we had worked with before um, who were interested in joining and joined us pretty shortly after we started. But it was still a small group. We started our law firm in temporary space over on Pine Street in one conference room um, that was an interior windowless conference room with a little reception desk outside of it. Um, and we spent a lot of the first two months trying, or three months, trying to figure out how we could avoid having clients see our offices because if they saw our offices, there was no way they were going to take us remotely seriously because we did not look like a legitimate law firm. Um, and we would all sort of be walking outside trying to get cell reception on our phones. Um, but... Clients were super supportive, and I think they got that there's something really attractive about having an alternative to the big firm model, and they were rooting for us to succeed. Mm. Um, And so that was really fun Mm. as well. Now, given the fact that the firm, the first name on the firm is your name, were you sort of the ringleader or the person that was really kind of spearheading this, or what would you say about that? Oh, I, you know, I don't know that I would call myself the ringleader. I think there was really a group of us who were all pretty equally involved in that original founding effort. I think I just won or lost the coin toss, depending on how you think about it. (laughs) Well, how's it been since then? Has it been, I mean, obviously it's been very fun. You said it's been exciting, but has there been bumps in the road? I mean, was it harder than you thought? I mean, what is your perspective now, nine years later? You know, when we started, I was convinced that everyone else was going to do the same thing that we did um, and that we just were prescient enough to do it first, but that we were going to see a wave of sort of small boutiques because it just seemed to me so logical that especially when you're representing a lot of startups in this space that clients would understand the proposition there's a lower infrastructure cost in in at least some ways and it's just easier to be flexible 
outside of the structure of a big firm. So I really expected to see a lot of other people do the same thing we were doing. That mostly hasn't happened. Yeah, right. Um, and I, and it, still, it still surprises me because I talk to friends at big firms who say, oh, I wish I were doing what you're doing. And I always want to say, why don't you? <laughs> you know, but... But I think the reality is, you know, lawyers are pretty conservative creatures, yeah, um, and it—I'm not sure that it actually is risky, but I think it feels uh, risky to people. It really, if anything, I would say it's been easier than I thought it was going to be. We really didn't know what to expect. We'd obviously mm. never done something like this before. Mm. Mm. But you know, law firms are not that complicated. I mean, the economics of a law firm are pretty simple. We've been incredibly fortunate, I think, to attract some amazing lawyers. And yeah. part of, I think, what's sort of been our secret is that if you're a young person coming out of law school and you don't want to go to a big firm, but you want to do this kind of work, there aren't that many alternatives. Yeah, right. And so I had, I had been really worried about hiring. And I think it was hard when we first started because people were nervous about coming to a firm that had only been in existence for a year or two. But now I think we have enough of a track record that people can see the proposition and we're really, I'm just blown away by the caliber of people who want to come work with us. Now when you look back, when you look at yourself and do you think that really, do you think compared to most lawyers, you really just are a lot less risk averse than most lawyers? Or I mean, maybe you don't realize it for yourself, but now that you've talked to many lawyers, do you think that's just the case? Do you think you're just more of a risk taker? I I think people would say that I'm less risk averse than your modal (laughs) lawyer. I think that's probably fair. And And again, you know, maybe not relative to like people at large, but relative to lawyers, that's probably true. I also just think that I'm sort of one of those people that like I see something I want to do and I do it. And I think a lot of people sit and plot and plan and try to plan for every contingency and you can't, Um, you just don't know. So I think at some point you just have to make a decision and you know, trust that it'll all work out okay. And in our case, it did. So what's your future plans for Dirty Tangry? I mean, what do you, do you have a goal of a certain size that you're trying to reach? Or do you, are you expanding more other practice areas? Tell me a little about what, how is the plan evolving as, you, as this moved along? So I don't think of ourselves as having a target size because I really do think lawyers are like sharks. I think you either grow or you die, mm-hmm. absent having a very different model. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to attract really good associates. In order to do that, I think we need to give them a career path. Mm -hmm. And that means that we need to be able to make a commitment to them, which we do, that if they are good and they do work of the caliber that we expect, understanding that we're very picky, Mm -hmm. and they have the other attributes of a partner, we'll make them partner. That means in turn then that we're going to have to have other associates to do the work on their cases. Um, One of the things that I am most proud of here is the number of lawyers who have developed their own practices Mm. and really grown into being independent first chair lawyers that clients call as an initial matter Mm. for their cases. Mm. That makes me incredibly proud. But that then fuels growth because they also need folks to work on their cases. So... We love having a small firm, and obviously part of why we started the place is because we like being at a small firm, but there's just an inevitable tension there mm-hmm. because we know that if we're successful, we're going to grow, and I think the question is not whether we will grow, but how we manage that growth as thoughtfully as we can and try to preserve the culture that we have now, which is really intimate because we all know each other so well and allows us to work together very closely. 
while recognizing that that growth is inevitable. It's going to happen. Well, given the, the fact that you started with five lawyers and now you're at almost 30, you said, does it feel like it's kind of big already or what does it feel like now? So it's very funny. Um, we had four lawyers start yesterday and I was not in the office and I came in today and then came out of a meeting to do a little orientation session. And I said it was the first time I'd been at the firm when I walked into a meeting and felt like I needed to introduce myself because there were <laughs> a couple of people in the meeting that I had not yet met. And so that was definitely, I'm going to remember that. That was actually one of the milestones in the firm for me. Um, it, you know, it, it, it feels different in some ways because there is this institution and all of these people that we have responsibility for, both lawyers and staff. But I also say to people, somebody asked me, when did you start planning for generational transition? Um, and I said, February 1, 2009, which was the day we started. Mm. You know, you have to be thinking about that mm. from the very beginning. Mm. And so, you know, although it feels different in some ways, I've always thought about the mm. firm mm. as something that I was hoping would be around for the long run mm. and sort of visualizing what it would be like. So I would say it's actually in a lot of ways better than I had imagined um, and more successful than I had imagined, but it, it doesn't feel different in kind mm. from what I hoped it would be. Well, given that you work with so many young lawyers now, um, what kind of advice do you give them for people who are just starting their career and are starting their career and they want to become IP lawyers or just trial lawyers in general? Yeah, so one thing I would say is to do as many different things as you can. I'm still very much an advocate of the model of becoming a lawyer first and foremost, rather than thinking of yourself as being too subject matter specialized, mm. because I think you learn incredible amounts from doing different things. And the people that you're practicing in front of, if you're practicing in the trial court, they're not specialists. Mm. They have that broader perspective. And I think it's good for young lawyers to have that broader perspective too. Um, at the beginning of this year, I spent a couple months in trial up in Santa Rosa in this case representing Sonoma State University in a private attorney general act case involving whistleblower claims of asbestos and lead exposure. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does that have to do with intellectual property law? And the answer is absolutely nothing. There was no IP <laughs> issue in sight. Um, but the case was going to go to trial. And I had done a trial for Cal State University before, so they wanted me to come in and try it. And I said, I'll do that if I can try the case with a bunch of our associates. Hmm. So I went up with um, two sort of relatively senior associates and then a guy who had started at the firm a month before. We started a month before we moved to Santa Rosa. And we tried it. It was a long trial, um, state court, every sort of potential procedural issue that you can imagine. PAGA cases never go to trial. So it's completely uncharted territory. It's hmm. a representative action, but not a class action. Hmm. Um, but the two sort of senior associates each got on the order of 20 witnesses at trial. Hmm. And so for me, it was like, that's how you learn to become a lawyer. You stand up, they argued a ton of motions, jury instructions, but they also just got to put on witness after witness and learn how to deal with hostile witnesses and you know how you prep people. And that experience, I think, is just unparalleled mm. in terms of then when you go into a patent case or a trade secret case, really understanding how trial works. Because I think on some fundamental level, trial is trial mm. in terms of the basic advocacy mm. skills. Sounds like you obviously love what you do. Could you ever see yourself doing anything else other than being a trial lawyer, practicing lawyer? It's hard for me to imagine because the th one of the things I love so much about this job is the variety of things that we get to do. I have a very short attention span and I get bored really easily. <laughs> but the thing that's, one of the things I think is so cool about being a trial lawyer is you get to come in and learn something 
sort of in a really substantive way and immerse yourself in it, and then go learn something totally different. And I don't think there are many jobs that have that level of intellectual satisfaction. I will confess that I uh, love the food industry, and I used to think that if I flunked as a lawyer, I would go try to become a chef. I'm too old for that now. I can't. I couldn't do that anymore. Um, it ha- but it has a lot of the same adrenaline and team sort of camaraderie stuff. I think that law does. It's just a lot harder on your body. And it doesn't necessarily have the same level of intellectual rigor, which I think I would probably miss. Well, Daryl, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. If you do decide to become that chef, you'll have to come back and tell me about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is Richard Chu and Daryl Dury. Thanks. <laughs>